Elliot Goldstein is hosting a radio and podcast show out of New Mexico called NMDJ Presents Fly on the Wall. We are building a fresh, fabulous podcast library of musicians, writers, artists, and all good people of note, with many new and exciting guests to come. We are listener-funded. If you would like to assist our Venmo info is New Mexico DJ service. The PayPal info is New Mexico DJ service at gmail.com. We appreciate your help. We would like to thank Alan Gower for the intro music. Enjoyed the show. Hey guys, thank you for listening to Fly on the Wall podcast. I'd like to tell you how I got started. Um, I really had no idea on um, the beginnings of what had even where to start. And I stumbled upon Anchor by Spotify. And it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. And I'll explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. And um, when hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast automatically on listening platforms. I'm on Spotify. I'm on Apple Podcasts. I'm on other uh, platforms. And it, Anchor made it so simple. And um, it's all in one place. Everything you need to make a podcast, you can find in one place. And um, the amazing part is it's all free. So um, there is no uh, downside to any of this. So download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's Anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R. And again, it's the Anchor app or go anchor.fm. And it's real easy to get started. And um, thank you for listening to Fly on the Wall and uh, back to the show. Woodstock was a music festival held August 15th through the 18th, 1969, on Max Yasker's dairy farm in Bethel, New York. Build as an Aquarian exposition, three days of peace and music and alternatively referred to as the Woodstock Rock Festival, it attracted an audience of more than 400,000. 32 acts performed outdoors despite sporadic rain. The festival has become widely regarded as a pivotal moment in popular music history as well as a defining event for the counterculture generation. The event's significance was reinforced by a 1970 documentary film, an accompanying soundtrack album, and a song written by Joni Mitchell that became a major hit for both Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and Matthews' Southern Comfort. We are honored to have as our guests the producers and originators of the festival, Artie Kornfeld and Michael Lang. Remember that this radio show is listener-funded. If you wish to contribute our PayPal info is not your mother's radio at gmail.com. That's not your mother's radio at gmail.com. We would like to thank you in advance for any contributions. Can you hear me? Yeah, sure. Good. Okay, good. So we're good. Okay, okay you see my picture? I just had I put my picture up. Yeah. It's not it's not it's not sticking. Okay, good. So if we don't have a picture, we don't have a picture. No, we're good. Don't worry about it. Um, no, I did a 12-hour interview in Australia, 12 hours without a picture, and, it, and they got incredible ratings. No, no, no. Uh, Maureen is putting stuff up for us. Okay. Yeah. God, there's a lot of stuff to put up. It's all over the fucking page. I know. Okay, well, I'm echoing. I'm getting an echo. You're good. Okay, how about, yeah. how about now? Yeah, I heard my voice. Now I don't hear my voice. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, you yeah, can hear it. you can hear a little echo when I play music. That's all. It's the only time. You yeah, heard. well, that's, I don't mind that. Okay. I've heard it. I've heard it in final mixes, and it's freaked me out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where did that come from? Where did that come from? I know, I know. That was like McCracken in that symphony when I couldn't find the noise for right. a week. And, you know, and he was yep. humming as he played. Oh God. Okay. You know, you're going in and isolating 34 tracks of different instruments, just trying to find where that sound. That was it drove me crazy. Yep, drove me crazy. Drove me crazy having Debbie Harry standing next to me for six months. Yeah, really. Yeah, that drove me crazy too. You know, so yeah, okay. I could say welcome everybody to my 2000th interview in 50 years, <laughs> which go. is about right. Wow. But here I am. Yeah, are you gonna play still crazy? Yes. Yeah, I think it fits. I do All right, too. Well, it's Twelve o'clock. So should I just stay on? Yeah, just stay on. I'm gonna start. I have. I've. I, well, let's see what time is it now. I'll go live. Okay. Hang on. You got a? Okay, you got a couple of lines. <laughs> yeah, really. Okay, you ready? Yeah, I'm gonna get yeah, started. I'm gonna... I'm gonna get started. Okay. 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 I'm gonna. I'm gonna actually uh, mute you, so you'll be able to hear. No, no problem. Okay. Here we go. Hey Artie. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna I'm adding a call now, so I'll be with you in two seconds, okay? Okay, okay. Hello. Hello. Oh, hi. Okay, let me get everybody hooked up together. And let me just merge everybody. Okay, Artie. Arthur. Yes, sir. Okay, we have a special guest on with us today. Really? Yep, wait, hold Good on. Good morning, Arthur. Who is this? Good morning, Arthur. Who's that? Thanks. Michael? Yes. Hey, what do you say, Wayne? <laughs> yeah, we got everybody. Okay, I'm going live, guys. I heard, I heard two, way, way, you know, two words, and I said, I think that's Michael. <laughs> you, yep, you, wait, you, guys, you guys could talk. You, you, you're offline, guys, so I'm just going to well, introduce he, he, everybody. He's up early because he has to mow the North 40. Okay, everybody, it's Not Your Mother's Radio, and we have two very special guests today. Um, we have Mr. Michael Lang and Artie Cornfield together. And guys, say hello. I don't know when's the last time you guys actually had a long conversation. How you doing? Yeah, you, you, the night before, uh, yeah, about 48 hours ago. <laughs> okay, good. So um, yeah. here we are. So um, guys, how's it going? Everybody doing okay out there? I don't know. 
basically with Michael on, it's like Michael and I are doing very well because we, it's like we're friends like we were before the festival. Well, before it affected us, and we're back to just being friends from the neighborhood, right, Mike? Yep, absolutely. I know I'm calling you Mike. I have clean Mike. Well, Mike. Yeah, well, well, Michael Lang, Artie Kornfeld, we got both guys aren't today, and it's um, Michael's could spend about fifteen minutes with us, I think, right, Mike? Then you have to get running. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, if you want another fifteen minutes, it'll cost you. <laughs> <laughs> well. So, um, so, so, so you guys are still, still very friendly, and you guys do a lot of talking, and um, yeah, yeah, and um, Artie, let's go back yeah. to um, you know, what, 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 what can you tell me about you and Michael's uh, relationship together? Well, you know what we, uh, you know, after we stopped, it was a record company, and Michael and I were together, and then he went his way, and I went my way the label and uh, uh, it was a little strange because our, our original friendship was really based on coming from the same neighborhood and just just really loving each other and being good friends you know we go to movies we got to eat you know and uh, and you guys for have... some reason no we no well we we sort of separated and I went through losses in my life and he went through his trip and uh you know and, and but I no, guess what was it about four or five years ago Michael we really started to talk well, I'm, yeah, I'm, even more. Yeah, I'm talking about today. You guys are, st- are still good friends. It's like, um, you well, know. Yeah, Michael's probably might be my best friend I have. Well, that's great. That's perfect. And um, do you guys um, have any, uh, well, I know there's no plans about it, doing anything now, but it, it'd be great if you guys would sit down and put your heads together and come up with uh, uh, one, one, one big, big thing to uh, pull off, one more big uh, project. Yeah, we're we're planning on writing another musical anthem. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, that's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right, 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 right. no, no, but I, I mean, a book or something, something going on, a movie. Uh, uh, I mean, just you guys' life stories are amazing. You just have to get something. Well, out there. yeah, well, that that could be good. And we even talked about doing a, a thing together. But you know what? It's like um, we can't, we can't. You know, Michael's tried, and and I haven't tried. I've just tried to keep the spirit alive these years. But uh, you can't. Uh, you can't copy a miracle. No, 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 no. We're not talking about a, another music festival, but just some kind of a biography about the two of you, about the, your interactions, about uh, what you guys have been through together. You two have pulled off something that nobody else has been able to do. And I, I yeah, well, we, went, we went to see an Easy Rider one night in New York. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that what did it? Is that how you got it together? No, no, when, we were, when Michael was staying with me at my place, and uh, we hung out, you know? We, yeah. we were just like friends. Yeah. I mean, Capital, Capital was wondering why I was disappearing more and more. <laughs> yeah. And we were, we were flying to L.A., and we were just like, uh, we were young kids. Come on. We were, what are we? Michael, you were, what, 22? I was 24 when we first but, met? I mean, I was 24, and you were 26. No, shit. no, no, you're right, you're right. <laughs> You're right. You're right. I was 23, and you were 25. Well, right, right. Okay. Well, with the festival, we went up the year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. So, Michael, what, what what are you working on now? I talked to Artie a lot, but what are you uh, what are you what are you up to these days? Well, you know, there's 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 some projects that have been on hold for a while. I'm, yeah. I'm, uh, been I've been trying to get a uh, a film produced based on a, a Russian novel that I had the rights to called The Master Margarita, and um, 
Baz Luhrmann is, is involved in it in the project, but because of COVID, everything's on hold. So right. uh, most of the projects that I've been involved with, or or and thinking about being involved with, are just having to wait until you know there's a real recovery. Okay. Any any uh, um, any inkling of when that may be? When when, uh, when the floodgates you know, I mean, are going to be opened again? I mean, you know, Biden the other night suggested next Christmas things yeah. would be more normalized. But you don't you don't know. We don't. You don't know what what these variations, you know, on on, on the the uh, the virus will bring, and it's hard to predict. It's hard to it's hard to plan. Right. You know, I've been trying to get down. You know, I, I go to visit already every once in a while, and, and you know, for the whole year, I haven't been able to travel. And, sure. And, and uh, so, so it's, it really, you know, it's, it's it's been kind of like Groundhog Day every day. Yeah, it has been. I know they started um, um, advertising those uh, blues crews and the uh, jazz, you know, cruises for uh, January. Yeah, that's a perfect. That, that, that's a perfect idea to get everybody. To I know, I know, I know, I know. But but, but, <laughs> the, but yeah, but uh, January twenty two is the due date on those. Yeah, that's that's probably the, you know. I mean, it's speculative, but at least it's, it's got a shot. Yeah. Now, what do you what, what do you um, um, anticipate the future of um, a live music is going to be? I know with this whole separation thing and everything else, it's going to get really, really tough to um, to, to, to get a lot of people into any one type of, into one theater. from my from my from my point of view, it's 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 a difficult situation until you can have full occupancy. Um, just because of the nature of concerts and people want to be sort of next to each other, and and you know you you can do some virtual things, but yes. but it's not the same as 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 the real deal. Yeah, yeah. So I know the um, uh, hockey and basketball they're planning on opening up at uh, what ten um, percent of seating. Yeah, but you know you, your 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 deals for for sports are you know based around. Really broadcast. Sure, advertising. Um, so, yeah, a lot of so, advertising. So, yeah. So, you know, Elliot, my real deal, yeah, Michael, Elliot, my real deal is um, don't forget, I had 12 years of making records before Woodstock, and right. thank God I got my copyrights back, and I never had to do anything, I never really did music for money, so. Uh, I'm 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 secure until I check out, you know. Yeah. Check in. <laughs> but I'm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, know? I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't. I, it's like, would I go write another Rain the Park, another thing? No, I wouldn't. I did it. You know, that was it. You know. Yeah, but Artie, Artie, what do you think about live performing? What, what's going to be the normal on that now? Well, I've gone to other countries and I've spoke. You know, and other countries have paid to fly me in. And uh, I mainly, I love working with younger kids, and I love trying to keep the spirit. But I think Michael and I think is buried, and maybe with the, it seems, Michael, don't you think with the newer generations, even the music is starting to more classic-oriented? More what? Even more, 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 uh, more 60s, 70s music sound, even on the hip-hop records, they're using 60s and 70s hits in the background. Yeah, they are. Samples. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but I think, great. Go ahead, Mike. I, think, I, I was just going to say, I think he's, he's he's asking really about live performance. Yeah, yeah, live performances. Um, yeah. Well, well, to me, a, I intend to do. I intend to cut a couple of sides as soon as I'm over being ill. 
Uh, and that would be my that would be my epitome feeling to be in the studio with with analog equipment and a great engineer and write a couple of songs. And that would be my hidden dream. But I have been writing, so you never know. You have been writing. Uh, yeah, I'm happy that Mike and I, you know, talk like we did the day we met. So that you know, isn't that okay. that's good enough for me? You know, and I yeah. and I like the adoration, and I like the I like the the way people look at us, and I. I finally can accept it now. How about you, Michael? Yeah, I'm the same. I'm the same. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're sort of at ease, at ease with Woodstock now. Yeah, yeah. But, um, well, first of all, uh, um, a festival like Woodstock can never happen again. You know, it's, it's, you know that's off the table. That's never going to, you know, just what you guys did is like a once, getting hit by thunder once. But, um how, you're well, with, how's our concert on the moon coming, Michael? Yeah. <laughs> yeah we speakers, speakers on every planet. There you go. <laughs> but um, but do you think theater? Do you think um, um auditorium? Do you think auditoriums and um, um, uh, you know, stadiums will ever have concerts the way they did? Up, you it'll, know, it, it'll it'll come back eventually, of course. Yeah. As soon as it's safe, it will come back. I mean, there's, you know, there's always, there, there's obviously an increased demand for live music now because we haven't had it. Right. But there's, that, that, that's such a big part of everybody's life that, you know, it, it will bounce back as soon as it's safe. Are you doing anything in um, in, in production? Not right now. Oh, no, no, are you, but uh, you're up to, up to this point, have you been? I know you've, you've, you've worked up to, you know, the COVID, you were doing, uh, you know, Concerts and things like that. Well, you know, we 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 tried to do a 50th anniversary and it, and it didn't come off. Right. right. Um, we had the wrong partner, so that 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 uh, was very disappointing. We had, sure. I think, put together probably the best lineup that any festival has had for for years. Right. Um, and a lot of work, and and uh, turns out that that the court decided they were wrong. Yeah. Which was nice and redeeming, but still, it it it, it was a, a big missed opportunity. Okay. Yeah, Michael and I just talked the last month when before he was trying to do the third, and we actually discussed me coming in and working with him on it. But yeah, absolutely. Every everything just seemed to fall apart. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, everything everything happens for a reason. It just wasn't the right time or yeah. whatever. Well, that that had to fall about apart so Michael could get back together. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Okay. But you know, it, it was weird for us. Now, it's, a year later, it's weird for everybody. Everybody's festival got canceled. So, yeah. it's, it's just you know, you, you you always have the unexpected coming down the road. You never know what's going to happen next. Right. Um, but but you get through them. You know, we we we, uh, we had four years of Trump. We survived it. Yeah, we did. Uh, we did. I don't know if we could have survived another four years, frankly. No. Uh, but but uh, things have a way of balancing. Okay, well he's we're not done. You with know, you know, Elliot. You know what I mean? I did do. You know, don't don't just write it off. I did do five years of the Spirit of '69 every Tuesday at ten ten o'clock at night. Uh-huh. Michael was on a couple of times, and I did have twenty four million hits doing one hour a week. Wow. So the people wanted to be connected, and I did play new music, and I did play the old clip, and I had someone from every band in Woodstock on every week. Okay. You know, and and uh, that averaged a hundred thousand people an hour. So they were out there. Uh huh. And and be, I I'd like to have something turn me on again. I listen to the new music; it's just not turning me on. Yeah. You know. 
Okay. So, but the but the spirit. But, yeah, I'm not just talking. Yeah, I'm getting a kickback. Yeah, I'm getting I'd like a feedback. I, yeah, I think it's your end. I can only get that. I, I think it's you already. No, it's not me because I I didn't touch anything. You have your TV on. No, no, it's fine. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm I'm, too, I'm watching Dr. Fauci talk about the, the epidemic as we talk. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm not really. I'm just listening to Michael. I know. So 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 guys. Um, well, I got Elliot. I got to jump. I have a call coming, but okay. But, uh, nice to be with you, Ollie. I'll talk to you soon. Maybe, maybe yeah. tomorrow. Yeah, let's talk tomorrow or something. Hey, have, have yeah. a good day, kid. And uh, yeah, you too, Michael. I'll talk to you. I'll, I'll we'll we'll set up another time during the week. Okay, great. Okay, thank yeah, you. Love you, Michael. Take care. Bye, bye, guys. Okay, Arthur. Yeah. Okay, it's me and you now. Yeah, we're having fun listening to your interview with Michael Lang. Yeah, we. Um, no, I didn't like it particularly. No, I you know. I, I mean, I was into it because I know I know all Michael's thoughts on this stuff. So it's like, a, yeah. and I've known him for years. You know, I never, I never, I, I've been successful at everything I've done in the music world, right. whether it was as an artist, as a writer, as a producer, as running major labels, as yes. having my own label, and and you know, and my only concert was Woodstock. I, I the only thing I, my first show was the Changing Times with the original Pied Piper. The first time I ever played was with the Birds in Scottsdale, Arizona in 1963 or 4 right. and we opened for the, and we opened for the birds and that's where I met Crosby and McGuinn and, and that crowd you know and, and that was that was exciting okay and um, so I have a couple of questions for you that people have been asking me to talk to you about um, let's see what do we got here okay you were familiar with a producer named Bob Johnson yeah, very familiar. Okay, I'm getting a, I'm getting that, I'm getting that feedback again. I don't know why. That echo is back. Yeah, is it gone? It's okay, is it gone now? Yeah, it's gone. It's, it's gone now. It's something on your side. I don't know why. Okay, because I'm not getting it. Okay, so anyway, Bob Johnson. What's the deal with Bob? Bob Johnson was a great guy when I was um, when I was the vice president of Rocket Capital Records. Bob was the vice president at Columbia with the same job. Okay. We're on the same we're on the same level. Now Bob's past was incredible going back to Carl Perkins and Buddy Holly and John, and you know John Cash and all the songs he wrote and under a different name that no one knew about and he was an incredibly wonderful guy. Mm-hmm. And uh and then a friend of mine called me a very wealthy guy had sold his company and said, "You know, I've been talking to Bob Johnson." I said, "God, I haven't talked to him in 25 years." And he came and stayed with me here at the house, and we talked about putting out the Carl Perkins, and then McCartney got interested in coming in on it. Uh-huh. And uh, and then Bob uh, went and uh, checked out. <laughs> you know, yeah, you yeah. know, he, pa- he passed. He passed away. Bob right, was a right. genius. Okay. I mean, the, the story I've told you when he went with Columbia, you know, the famous Clive Davis, which I, I don't really go wow, Clive, because I know Clive a long time ago, and right. he, he was he was just, he was just he was just Clive. Okay. You know, and, and uh, I'm getting the kickback again. Anyway, so he, he called Bob Johnson into the office when Bob first went into Columbia. And he said to Bob, Bob, uh, I'm going over the roster and here's what I want you to do. He says, that guy with all those words and that whiny voice, that Bob Dylan, yeah. I want to drop him off the label. Wow. And then he, and then he said, 
and those two gays Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> I think they're go I think they're going nowhere. What 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 year was this? This was the early sixties, uh, mid sixties? Uh well no, this was just a couple of years ago before he died with me and him. You know, when he told me the story. Cause yeah, I, I know, but, but 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 when he was over at oh, Columbia. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, it was when Sound of Silence, it was when the Pipe Piper was out. Okay. You know, and, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, and uh, so, um, anyway, and then he said, uh, and that uh, and that old guy, that Johnny Cash, he's too old, I want to drop him. And Bob said, well, you know, I have his plans to go where Johnny served time at Folsom and do an album. Right. And Clyde says, if you go in, I do anything with Johnny Cash in that prison. Yeah, I'm going to fire you. So Bob was just—Bob was no revolutionary. He just loved music, and he right. hatred himself, and he went into Folsom Prison, and he cut Johnny Cash's biggest album, uh, Folsom Prison, and it wow. sold uh, it sold 17 million albums. Wow! 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 So, yeah, so um, that was that was quite zero. Right? Uh, well, Clive got into Mariah Carey, <laughs> you know. So, so, so Clive didn't make too many right decisions, huh? Well, no, Clive was great at what he did, but he was. I never want. I'm not. I, I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, I ran companies, had my own, but I. I was still just a guy. I was still just a kid from Bensonhurst writing right. songs, and right. I, you know, that thank God that part of me never changed. You okay, know, I went off a couple of times, but I came back. And you're still writing now, right? Oh, yeah, I'm writing better than ever, but there's no reason to play it for anybody when I go in and record something, and if I put it in, there is a service that if I put it out, they'll get it on every single uh, downloading sure, uh, sure. situation. I'm, I'm not doing it to make money, I'm doing it with a message, and it, it will be a message of, you know, you know, uh, like the song I wrote, Help Another Brother on His Way Today. You know, sure, uh, sure. Or what was too many of thousands not enough, which is from my twelve step trip. That's that's an anti drug song basically. Yeah, yeah, wow, okay. You know, uh, Nick well, Lowe Nick Lowe has a song called that too, One's Too Many and a Hundred Ain't Enough. Enough. No, uh, well, I said it's a thousand, it's not enough. It's an AA expression you hear at meetings. Sure, yeah. So um you know, I found out that one was too many and a thousand wasn't enough. Yeah. You know, and I'm so and I'm sober thirty eight years. Yeah, well, and um, also Bob Johnson had something to do with Leonard Cohen, didn't he? No, I found Leonard. I discovered Leonard Cohen actually. Yeah, I know you just. You know, well, well, the story was Leonard Cohen and I met in a kosher deli at three in the morning in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Well, and, and I, I'm sitting with Linda, and, and, they, and I, I, at first I laughed when I heard they opened the kosher deli, and we were both in the El San Juan Hotel, and I, I walked across, and Linda and I are sitting, and this one guy. The restaurant's empty except for three people, Linda, I, the cooks in the back, and my and Leonard. And I see this guy just sitting there, and he has something about him. I, I figured eventually I'd walk over and say hello. And after about an hour and a half of us just looking at each other, I walked over to him. What he didn't know was that someone had given me a tape of Suzanne, the song. Uh-huh. And 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 this is also why the Woodstock movie happened. It's because Freddie Weintraub on the bitter end before uh-huh. he became the head of films for Warner Brothers. And I gave him a big deal at Mercury on an act that I knew wouldn't sell because Freddie was a friend. So anyway, I, I go over to Leonard and I said, who are you? He said, I'm Leonard Cohen. I, I said, I know your name. I, I, and I couldn't remember why because I don't remember who wrote Suzanne. Uh-huh. He said, well, I'm a, I'm a songwriter. He said, but... Nobody's doing my material yet, and I, 
I just can't break through. And I said, I said, Leonard, you know, I blew his mind. I said, Leonard, I, to tell you the truth, I released two weeks ago Leon Bibb, the, the TV and the actor guy from Canada, and I used a full symphony on Suzanne. Wow. And actually, if you get a chance, go to YouTube if you can find Leon Bibb. That version of Suzanne's incredible because it's like it's with the New York Philharmonic. Really? Yeah, strings, horns. It, it was it, it was fun to do. I knew it wouldn't sell two records, you know, but it was such a great song. I'm a songwriter, yeah. so that's the first thing I hear. Right. You know, and, right, and right, then, right. Uh, I, you know, and then I heard him do Hallelujah, and it blew me away. You know, and uh, I didn't become a Leonard Cohen fan because I met him as a kid that, that that was trying to break in. Yeah, and uh, I just got into Leonard Cohen uh, just before he died, about a year before he died. Oh, okay. I spoke to a Fred Katera. Do you know Fred? I know the name, but I don't remember the person. Okay, Fred used to uh, he he worked for CBS. He was a um, staff engineer for CBS, and he um, he he told me a story about uh, Leonard that. Um, um, he was doing a, um, one of his earlier albums at CBS, and uh, Leonard said, "Can you get me a full-length uh, mirror?" So uh, you know, Fred went out, got him a mirror, and um, he put it in front of Leonard. And Leonard used to do his recording sitting in front of the mirrors because he couldn't. He wasn't a great guitar player, but he was able to tell uh, what chords he was playing, you know, looking through the mirror. And that's how he kind of recorded his first couple of albums in front of mirrors. So. Um, yeah, I would say if I was producer, I would say, Lenny, forget the fucking mirrors. Get into the music. <laughs> okay. Um, so that's um, so that's Bruce. Then also um, Tom Wilson. Do you remember Tom, right? Yeah, he was a friend. We were all friends. Yes. I, I came. I, my first show was '53, and my first record was '58. So we were the guys who were the young guys, and by the time it got to 62 to 65, 66, like when Michael met me, I was already the first vice president of rock in the industry, and that's when I met Michael, and I, was, I couldn't believe I had the Beatles, I had the Lou Waltz, I had the Rodstadt, I mean, you know, and uh, I was just listening to the stuff and stopping in the studio just to groove, you know, you know, it was interesting to go somewhere and get into someone else's trip and get out of my own crazy head. Sure. So crazy after all these years. Yeah, that's you. I mean, that, that song was written for you, right? You know what? I, Eddie's, Paul's younger brother. Yeah. Eddie, Paul Simon and my my late wife Linda. They all went to they went to Forest Hills High School. Listen, Wes went there. Bert Summers went there. Okay. And um, uh, Eddie Simon came to me and, and I signed him as an artist to Mercury and then I hired him as an A&R man to work for me and Paul and I became friends you know stickball shooting baskets uh, that kind of trip and going to Chinatown for dinners you know at 3 in the morning sure. and uh, when he went out of town he would give Eddie the keys to his place and he would have his tapes he was working on and uh, went in and listened and he was it was still crazy after all these years and it, because he had a two-track, like I had a studio, studio equipment in my living room. Right. And um, now that, I, that it is after all these years, and I am still crazy, I could vow he was—he knew what he was talking about. Okay. Um, so Paul blew my mind. Paul and I had the same manager in 1958. Really? Yep. The guy named Jim Gribble 
He managed the Token, Jane the Americans, the Mystics, the Passions, the Mellow Kings. I mean, he had the beginning rock artists. Really? Everyone, he managed them, yeah. He was very good friends with Alan Seed and Morris Levy. So that'll give you a hint okay. about yeah. why his acts always happen. <laughs> sure, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's when I auditioned for the lead in Jay and the Americans, because uh, you know, when Jay got thrown out of the band, or however that went down, because I love Jay Trainer. Right. And then they, and then I, and there was twelve guys, and I sang "Just to Be with You," the the Passion song, and I was going to be the lead singer in Jay and the Americans, which I I I was afraid to even do it. I wouldn't even probably would have said no. Okay. And then this guy Dave Black came in. And his voice was so strong. But, you know, Dave was good studying. He could have been a cantor in the Jewish religion. He could have sure. sang in services. And uh, his voice is so incredible. I mean, I, I just looked at Jim, you know, and I said, I just put my thumb up. And he said, yeah, he said, he's the guy. And that's that's the moment that that, uh, that Dave became Jay. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah, Dave Black. Oh, wow. You know, yeah, I, I, I... I always I, call him Dave. Do you, do you remember... Um the Sands Beach Club in uh, on Long Beach. Yeah, by Lido Beach. Yeah, there's one in Lido, one in Atlantic. I um, yeah. I used to uh, work with those guys, doing music for them. And um, there was a wedding one night, and I um, I was happened to be there. And Jay, they, they Jay was the lead singer in the in the wedding band. This was after Jay and the Americans already, and it seemed that he owed. Um, somebody money and to work the money off he was working weddings for the for this whole uh organization at the time yeah dave black is a tough cookie boy yeah yeah I'll yeah you, I, w- I wouldn't want to i wouldn't want to take him on in the, in the park you know yeah i think it was a gambling debt well yeah i was a gambler too but i paid it you know and, and i stopped you know, because one's too many. One bed's too many, and a thousand's not enough. I know, I know. That's what they, that's all the... Uh, the good thing to remember in life, you know, because it does help you not go into trouble. You don't, you don't think I have desires to escape my mind sometimes or my life. Sure, sure. You know, but uh, I, I think my meditations and my trips to India and the, and, the, and the fact that I was fortunate enough to know the Maharishi and Swami Satyananda mm-hmm. and Guruji now, and I went to career and i got into buddhism you know and i'm still a jewish kid from brooklyn yeah yeah you still meditate yeah every night do you good i used to meditate the whole year before woodstock linda and i would sit and we, i lived on the 38th floor you could see over the city uh-huh. and we put we put our incense on and when you when you do transcendental you meditate for 20 minutes right and uh, and, uh, and and twice a day. Okay. And I did that for the whole. Uh, I started in '67. I did it throughout '68. You know. So when it came to Woodstock, and you know what, I wasn't a stoner before Woodstock. Mm-hmm. I didn't get into really get into drugs on on a, on a bad level. It didn't stop me from having hit records or taking songs or taking Springsteen to number one or anything. It didn't stop me with that. It just stopped me. Something inside of me died. Yeah, you know, and everything was great in my life. So you know, it only took me twenty years, <laughs> and and you know what? And and then I founded Cocaine Anonymous in nineteen. Me and guys that's right, you did. Band, me with people I don't want to name. Sure, sure, sure. They sure. Yeah, I came public because I know how many people looked up to Michael and myself, uh-huh. and uh, I wanted to let them know, hey, 
You know, it's, it's a good trip now because after Woodstock, everybody wanted to get high with me, right. and I went right into it. So you know, I, I, I fortunately I never got into shooting, you know, and I never really got into downtown, right? You know, but cocaine, cocaine took me away, and and I justified it by Einstein used it, and you know, Sigmund Freud used it, and, yeah. You know, and uh, Samuel Clemens who wrote uh, Mark Twain, you know, sure, Huckleberry sure, Lee, sure, sure, sure. you know, and. Uh, yeah, and then, uh, but the thing was, Linda was so magical, you know, it's like... Um, and and, and, for, and for the people who don't know, Linda was your wife. Yeah, Linda was the reason, she was the idea, you know, Michael doesn't mention it, because then it would be two cornfields against the line, you know, and I don't care, I don't care who gets credit for what, I, I'm just happy when, that people uh, hold it dear, and it, and it gives them some kind of spiritual feeling right. when they think about Woodstock. When I see that field, every time I see a picture of the field, I go, "Wow!" Yeah. And it's like, and I and I have no connection with it. I'm just another fan, you know. Right. And when I saw the documentary too, it was when I I never advertised it, so people don't know. But at Bethel Awards, I was the first person to use the stage. I showed the director's cut. At first, I spoke for an hour and a half. I didn't advertise, and 3,000 people showed up, and it was drizzling on that field, just like Woodstock. Okay. And um, and I got up, and I uh, spoke for an hour and a half, and then I went and I sat down with the crowd on the field, which I always wanted to know what it looked like. Right. And that movie is so good and shot so well. It just blew me away because it was, it was 40 years later. I think it was the 40th anniversary or 45th. Uh-huh. And, uh and no one knows I did it because I didn't advertise it. I didn't need to. But uh, it just shocked me when I saw it as as just a music fan. And I saw what was there. And I went, oh, my God, this is mind-blowing. And then all of a sudden, what pulled me back is I saw the shot of me and Richie Havens with me and the mic in my hand walking into his microphone. Because Richie and I had been friends for 10 years before with Stock. And uh, I just said, oh, my God. God, look at this thing! And I said, and then it snapped me back into who I was and what my connection was. But before that, I was just one of the people. And then after I did selfies and all that for an hour and a half, and people are at Woodstock came over and said, "Audience, I don't know what happened, but the things you said, and then seeing that director's cut, it's better than the original movie, yeah. director's cut too." Right. And uh, and I and I just um, they said to me, Audie. This is the first time with all those other concerts that I really feel like it did when I was at Woodstock. And I said, you know what? I feel the same way, you know. But someone helped me up the hill because my back was gone. And that was just before I had that four disc taken out of my back. Jeez. You know? So I, I need to have help getting up the hill to get up to view. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So and that, was, you know, that was the same feeling. But it's the same thing when I was in India and I spoke. And those, those kids, you know, you don't know it, but around the world, Woodstock is bigger than here. If you go to Korea or you go to India or you go to Italy, I mean, Woodstock is like it just happened to a lot of those college kids. Right. And the same here, when I when when young kids call me that are, that are sophomores in college, they're really they're really up. And then I realized that in the seventh grade, it's in every history book, and it's all the way through master's degrees at Oxford. So in Oxford, there's a course on Woodstock, and it's and it is world history. So in a hundred years, when yeah. we don't remember the Beatles, it's still going to be world history, like the Revolutionary War. It's going to be there as world history, you know. You know, yeah. you know I won't be world history. I'll be history. Totally yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you ever think people are going to forget the Beatles or they're like Beethoven? In a hundred years, yeah. You know, 
I mean, I was a symphony trumpet player, so I know Beethoven, and I did that. You know, I, I was really good. I was all state. Yeah. You know, you know, and then I got a guitar, and I I got lost in folk music, and my friendship with Cass Elliott. You know, when we were in school in Washington together. Sure. Sure. You know, we would jam, we would jam, and then having the spoonful and knowing Sebastian, you know, and then I started to go with Richie down to the village, and I knew Paul, yeah. and Peter Paul and Mary, his real name is Noel Stogie. Right, Noel. And we were friends, and I started to go to the clubs and get into folk music, uh-huh. you know, and that sort of pulled me into rock. Right. Okay. And um, so what do you think? We, we've, um, obviously, we're not kids anymore. And uh, how do you think um, the second part of our lives are going? Um, wow, you know, after losing my wife and child in three years, you know, in 78 to 83, um, it took me a while. I mean, it didn't take me a while because right after my daughter died, I signed Survivor, this band in the bar in, in Chicago, and went on the road with them for a whole year. And then... Uh-huh. Uh, because the record company wouldn't put out the label they cut, and I remixed the label. The, the, the label it was called Premonition, the album, and I made it sound good. And I took one of the songs that they did, that I one that I produced that wasn't on their album that I produced called Poor Man's Son, and somehow it went to number one in L.A. And Sonny Bono, uh-huh. uh, I mean Sylvester Stallone, heard it so many times, but. I, we get a call, my partner Artie Rip at the time, from Sylvester Stallone saying, right. Hey, could you, I love you guys, but they're my favorite group. Could they write something about a tiger? And I said, what? About a tiger? And then he, uh, he says, I can't tell you why yet, but I need a song about a tiger. And then I, I mean, you know, and then I, I got it, four days later, I got a demo tape, which was a, which was the same you know, I, I didn't want to produce it. Nico Bolts went in and he produced it at the, the Captain from the Captain's in the studio, Lumbo. Okay. And uh, it sounded like the demo, and uh, I just knew when I heard it as a songwriter. I mean, just that groove and Dave Pickler's voice. And uh, after two years, I, and I got Eye of the Tiger in the movie in Rocky Three, and it was the biggest selling record in history and still is. And uh, I walked, you know, I never made a penny on it. I was about 200 grand in the hole. I didn't have bread, but I was. And uh, I was happy I did the trip. I mean, it's always been my problem. I I, I just can't accept you do music for money. It's good if you can make a living. I'm glad I get songwriters' royalties. But you know what? It's just making music or or listening to music. I'm I'm like anybody who's listening to this. Mm-hmm. I'm no different. I got my problems. I got my victories and my defeats every day. <laughs> you know, but uh, well, you know, it, it's okay. Well, um, you you obviously did okay in the music business. It was your life. It was your career. And uh, well, I was going to be a, I was going to be a lawyer my whole life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's not how it panned out. You 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 spent your life in the music business. And you did extremely, uh, you know, I don't know about financially, but whatever you uh, put your mind well, I to. Made seven, I made $17 million, you know. I don't think I failed. No, 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 no. And I gave away about 16 to young acts like Buzzy Lenard, who everybody knows. Uh-huh. And I gave them back. you got to have friends that Bette Midler did. 
But when, when Buzzy, I let Buzzy go from a Lutheran Records where he was signed in the band Music, uh -huh. which is a great album. I I cut it and then I had it and then I it was the first the first album really cut it Electric Lady Leno was the test album yes and people don't know that you know well Eddie Eddie, Eddie, know, Eddie Kramer produced that album no I hired Eddie to go in yeah I, I yeah. hired Eddie to, to produce Buzzy Leno okay that's why he produced that album I could have produced that album but I didn't want to right. You know, I didn't think I would do it right. It's the same reason I turned down Phoebe Snow when she came, when Denny Cordell, you know, who owned, who produced everybody you know, from the Kings to Cocker to Leon Russell. Sure. You know, and I had, and I, me and Phoebe sat for just for two hours in my car. Denny was at the Chelsea Hotel and I was park, on Park Avenue or something in that area. And we talked and she played and I, she blew me away. But I said to Phoebe, you know what? I'm not really, I don't know the blues that well, and I don't right. really think I could, I could do the job that you need to happen. Right. So I passed on it. I knew she would happen, but I knew I wasn't the guy that could make her happen. So I told Denny, you know, and, uh, and it was fine because it was all very honest and straight ahead. Okay. Yeah. You don't, you don't, you don't invest in music to, you know, just to, so you did this or that. It's it's just a trip, you know. It's, it's it is. Like, it's an organic thing, you know. It grows, you know. Oh yeah, and the memories, like when Phil Spector threw me and Carol King out of the studio when he was recording the the Righteous Brothers of the Ronettes in New York, and we really? were thrown out of the studio for laughing. Yeah. Well, we we go we we go, we go there. Phil comes in, and and then he came up with this idea. Even though he had a full orchestra, he had 32 musicians and arrangements. He decided that he was going to have the guys play it for about a half hour. Then he was going to shut all the lights out in the theater and have them go through it for like an hour, so they could memorize. The, you know, and these are intricate parts. You know, yeah, yeah. and uh, and Carol and I were in a vocal booth, and we didn't know the mic was turned on in the vocal booth. So after an hour of Phil listening to this, this thing that wasn't even together, Carol and I just started laughing because we had worked together and I wrote with her husband, Jerry Goffin, and we were friends, you know. Okay. And, uh, yeah, and uh, we started laughing and fell through ourselves. So that was, my, that was my highlight with Carol King, except that they did two of my songs on that Cookies album uh, with Don't Say Nothing Bad About Your Baby on it. Okay. Yeah, and, uh, Ch and Chains that the Beatles did. Yeah, Chains, that's right. Yeah, Goffin and King. Yeah, incredible writers. Oh, they, were, they were little. They were, they were as good as one of the McCartney. So Backrack and David and Nan and Wild and Brian Wilson. It was great writing with Brian Wilson. You know, it was great writing with Steve Allen. Steve Allen. What 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 did you write yeah. with Steve Allen? Well, Steve wanted to write uh, with one of the new hot writers, so he called Donnie Kirshner, who was the president of Screen Gems Music at that point. Right. And, uh, you know, Donnie Kirshner's rock guy. Sure. And Donnie had, we had the hottest publishing company in the world. We were, we were beating Motown out for BMI Awards, which is the top 100 songs with play in, in, in the country. We were beating them out 12 to 11, 13 to 12, or we tied 10 and 10 wow. awards for the most played songs. And uh, now, I know I was telling you now isn't that, that, that why the monkeys were put together? No, the monkeys I produced, baby. Donnie said to me, Artie, there's a kid in Oliver on Broadway, and I, I knew the guy who wrote Oliver, Lionel Park. Right, right, right. And, uh, 
I, a guy named Roy Sylvester, his agent, came over and met me in my office. So I went with Linda and I saw Davey and Oliver and then we started to hang up and he looked at me like an older brother, sort of like the Calcils looked at me. Sure. You know, he was probably the same age. And um, I loved Davey and I, I cut him, I cut three sides of them and they're, they were good, but they never came out. And then Donnie said to me, Audie, and then Charles Koppelman, who really brought me into the, and Don Rubin, who really brought me into the publishing world, because uh, they believed in me. And I, I just, uh, Donnie said to me, Audie, Charlie's leaving, but I want you to stay here. And if you stay, I'm, I'm putting on the TV show with the monkeys with David Jones, and you're his producer, so you're going to write and produce all the monkey stuff. Well, and I thought about it, and I, and I said, Donnie, it's why I never promoted a Dave, worked on a Dave Clark project, because I didn't like a band that was actors, you know, good-looking yeah. guys at the cast, and, I, and the monkeys are the same thing. None of them are really writers and producers or, or artists. Right. I said, you know, and I love Davey, but uh, I'll have to pass. So I gave up that money and went for went for the same $300 a week I was getting at that point. And I went uh, and the cop and then I left. And the uh, first time we saw Davey was at the Music Awards show. And he walked by and we hadn't seen each other in 15 years. And I couldn't believe in, in 1965 when I took him in the studio, I, when I got a Corvette after Dead Man's Curve happened, they gave you a little but, button for you to put on your suit jacket. Yeah. And I gave it to, I gave it to David Jones like 20 years before I saw him. And he was wearing that. And he, as he walked to the stage, I was five rows back sitting with peaches and herb. But he just, and uh, Davey, and he got out of line and ran in and he hugged me and kissed me, you know, and... Uh, yeah, I, I was. Uh, I was sad to see Davey uh, leave so early. Yeah, you know? but um, but didn't um, Kirshner um, put the monkeys together to, to to sell music? You know, all, all, all the songs that he had in this publishing company, he let the monkeys do right. No, no. The it wound up that Poison Heart, a lot of the stuff. It's what made Neil Neil Diamond. Neil Diamond, yeah. What I'm a believer, you know. No, Pleasant Valley. Pleasant Valley. He already he already had a national network deal, so you know if you're on TV, it's like the Calcers. I was it came out with the Bee Gees the same day with the first with the first record, and theirs was the Great Mining Disaster, and the Calcers was the Rain in the Park, which was my song and my production, and uh, I watched them go up the charts, and and they they died they slowed down in the 40s, and we were like about 10 points ahead, and then we did the Ed Sullivan Show, and the record took off, you know, and went double platinum, and uh, you know got me the DMI Legend Awards of Writer. And um, I saw the power of TV, you know, what it could do. So when I passed on the monkeys, I knew I was giving up, you know, you know, a fortune. But like I said, I didn't do music for money. I did it to make a living to support my family. Sure. But, you know, right, right. what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Eat a, instead of a, a $4 a pound steak, you're going to eat a $30 a pound steak? Yeah, 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 yeah. Same steak. Sure. Okay. So, um, but you did have a lot of success in the music business. I mean, you, uh... Well, yeah, if you go to the Jewish Museums in, in New York, there's a plaque, and it says the 15 Jewish men who created rock and the rock industry and the rock culture, and there I am with Jerry Wexler and Lou Adler, and I was shocked when someone sent me a picture of the plaque, because... 
That's picking the 15 men who created the rock culture. Right, right, right. right. And okay. I guess uh, I always said Dylan. For me, Dylan started it and Michael and I closed it. Okay. That makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. Wow. So, 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 Dylan's in my mind. Yeah? So, what do you, um, if you had to uh, uh, mentor a young person getting into music these days, what would you, uh, what would you tell them? Oh, you know, I, I don't ask money, but I've been advising acts that happen. You know, uh, I turned down Gene Simmons when he started his label. He wanted me to be the president and run the label. You know, I've been helping young acts, uh, you know, for, for the whole uh, 56-year career I have, or 57-year right. career. I've always got a kick out of helping. You know, there's a lot of acts I signed, or I... I paid and, and the, the producer went nowhere but it was still you know getting them to and making good records you know and just finding a new guitar sound you know that stuff is fascinating you know and when the newer equipment came on the Cooper time cubes and the flanging and you know it was you know I was lucky because I, I discovered two engineers one was Shelly Akis at the record plant and when when Roy Sakawa, uh, who did Imagine and those things, they couldn't show up. I said to Shelley, Shelley, could you uh, be the first chair? And he engineered the album, and the album was a big hit that I was working on. And then I had to do a movie that I wrote everything for, and I had four days to record this. It was a, it was a movie was called Skateboard, during the skateboard craze. Okay. And uh, I went to Regent Sound, and the engineer also, Artie Palhamus, was sick. And the assistant engineer was Bill Zimzik, and I watched Bill go on to do the Eagles and then Jay Giles and yeah. Pointers, whatever. James, James Gang, James Gang. Yeah, well, yeah, Zimzik was great. Yep, you know, yep, but I yep. just knew he was, he was a great guy. You know, and that's I right. just happened to be living in Coconut Grove when they were working in Bayshore Sound on Hotel California, and I went in the studio. You know, to just to hear what they were where, where they were at. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, he he did a great job. He really did. I mean, you know, it's it's um it's like like the Beatles say they would have gone nowhere without Brian Epstein. Right. You know, and, it, and you know, it doesn't matter as long as you put the horse on the track. It doesn't matter if you're in the winner's circle when the race is over. Well, okay, I never thought of it that way, but I guess you're right. Me neither until just now. <laughs> I know so, it's a heaven, but so, so, yeah, well, you know, you know, you train them, you know, you, you train them, and then you, and then you, then you have some prep races, you know, to get to get to the derby level, you know, and sure. you see the workout times, you know, and then you, and then you put everything down. The way I screwed up is Joe Namath. I had I signed Joe Namath and Joe Frazier to Capitol because they were friends, right? And I gave them both record deals, and I gave them advances. I knew Namath could never record, but the Jets, and it happened to be the year the Jets pulled the biggest upset in, in football history. Yeah. And uh, when Joe Namath was playing Baltimore, and that's what made the NFL happen that game, he said to me, Artie, bet everything you have, show your house to put on the Jets. I said, Joe, you're 18-point underdogs. And then he flew me and Linda down to Miami, and uh, we went to the game, and at halftime, the Jets were winning by like 14 points. Yeah, that, what, was, me, what was that, 63, I, I, right? Yeah, something like that. I don't yeah. remember those years. But 
You know, yeah. All the years worries. How am I going to get up and how am I going to yeah. stay awake? And I got to be back in the studio. And oh right, my God, right. I only had three hours sleep. Sure. You know, and uh, it, it was uh, it was a kick getting Survivor. And when I was managing, I'm playing the like the Superdome in L.A. Okay. You know, or tour or touring the Hall of Notes, and uh, that's when Tommy Mottola approached me about being his partner, and I passed. Yeah. Well, Tommy used to manage Hall of Notes. Yeah, and I had a band called Max Demian, which is still, it beat out the Stones for the most radio stations the first day out. And this record, I set it up, it got 300 FM stations. And what happened was, it was on RCA, and there was an oil strike, and they had just pressed 10 million Elvis Presley albums, and they had no vinyl. So they only pressed 2,000 Max Demian albums. The record was the number one requested on radio for... It's they sold out in a half hour, the two thousand. Really, and they we couldn't get any more records in the stores, but it stayed the number one requested, and the number one most played on FM radio. Wow. And there's one song called Paradise that, that I listen to, it and I go, "Oh my God, did I really do this?" <laughs> you know. Wow. And I would say it was the engineer, yeah. Frank DeGusto, uh and, and 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 the band, you know. But I, I, you know, I, but I sat there for twenty hours shifts, you know. Sure. You know, and I kept, I kept them alive for the couple of years it took, you know, and uh, and then I just turned them over to Compliment and uh, the right, the I left. You know, I, I decided to take time off with my family. Okay. Yeah. So, um, what's going on these days? How does a uh, um. Uh, how, how does a godfather, well, not a, yeah, I guess you call you a godfather of, of rock and roll, of music. How do you, um, how do you keep busy these days? Are you still involved in um, uh, creating music? I know, oh. I know, you know, COVID, nobody can leave the house. I know that, but I, know, I understand you're still writing. Yeah, but I could get on the phone and I could yeah. call Lou Adler, or I could call I could call one of the Davies brothers, you know, or you know, or I could call uh, J- Graham Nash, right? You know, so I so I am involved. I'm I'm still in the loop. It's just that I keep to myself. Okay. You know, and uh, you know, when I was sick, I was in bed two out of the last four years because I got sick. Right. You know, and um, you know, now I'm uh, you know I'm ready to go back in the studio again because. I just like to go in and cut and just throw one record out. Just do it one more time. Yeah. You know, it, not to have it happen or not, but I think if I cut the right record with my name and what I represent, and if it's a message about helping get rid of this situation the world's in, you know, just helping, even if it's a half a degree. Yeah. You know, then I'll be happy with it no matter what happens. Yeah, well, um, anybody in particular you want to get into the studio? No, it's going to be me. I'm going to be the artist. You're going to be the artist and writer and producer. Okay. Well, I, I, I've had hits as an artist. I know what it's like. Sure, sure. Yes. Okay. Yeah, no, yeah, I'll be, you know, it'll be funny. I'll be, I'll be uh, almost 80 years old when I put it up. Okay. So uh, you'll be the new prince. Yeah, I, like we played the song so crazy after all these years. Uh-huh. No, I knew, prince, I knew Prince before he was Prince, because Bob Cavallo, I signed the spoonful with Coppola and Rubin and John Sebastian, and Bob Cavallo managed them. That's right. And then good. he also had it, and then he was working on his kid Prince. Uh-huh. You know, so I heard Prince's stuff before he even recorded. Right, right, And right. Uh, you know what? He's one of the greatest guitar players that ever lived. He was. Yeah, yeah. He definitely See, was. I, and I still think, like, you see, well, to me, he's here, you know? Yeah, and the whole thing with the uh, Prince is, um, 
he kind of took uh, that whole Sly Stone thing and, and just um, got it out there on steroids, so to speak. You know, he just kind of blew up that Sly Stone uh, whole, you know, uh, one man, one artist thing, and um, he was able to really make it work for him. Yeah, you know, my biggest get off, aside from being at Woodstock, or my no, every time I went in the studio, it was a total get off, hit or miss, it didn't matter. But it was when I when, when I represented Neil Young as manager, Elliot Roberts, uh-huh. and, and and they played me rocking in the free world, and I didn't promote. I did Woodstock, and then someone asked me to promote Fast Call with Tracy, and in both instances, it was the same manager, so the record company's got a letter saying, we don't want you to do one thing on Tracy Chapman, and I hired 11 guys, and I was the record company, it wasn't was Warner's, no one was allowed to make a call, Right. they gave me power of attorney, and then Neil, then Neil called me, and he played me rocking in the free world, and I said, Neil, I'm not a promoter, and I'm a big fan. I adore you. You know, you're incredible. You know, and uh, he said, Artie, he said, he said, you have all these gold gold albums and stuff. He said, you know, with 14 albums, I've never gotten a gold album. And being a build building, you know, from from the 60s, early 60s, when Neil was, you know, you know, mowing corn in Canada, yeah. I uh, I just said to Neil, everybody, if you grew up in the New York writing mill. You knew that you only could go gold. There was gold and nothing went platinum back then. Sure. I said, you have to, you can't just have heart of gold on an album and nothing else. Yeah. And, uh, I said, you gotta have two hits, but I'll tell you something. You don't need me. Don't spend a dime. This rocket in the free world is going to be a huge hit and go to number one. Yeah. And he said, no, Artie, I don't trust Reprise and Warner Brothers. And they sent Warner Brothers a letter giving me power of attorney to Neil. Yeah. So they weren't. They also weren't allowed, and I hired eleven guys, and I was the label for for Freedom and Harvest Moon. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, I sort of because my knowledge saved Harvest Moon because I called the president of Reprise when Rocket in the Free World was like the biggest record, and, and I said, "What are you What are you doing?" Oh, I told Neil, Neil, I'm going to give you three top ten songs on this Freedom album. And he said, no way. The only hits rock in the field. I said, no, this, uh, this, uh, uh, the air she breathes, this, you know, and I told uh-huh. the songs. And then, and then, and then I, I called Richard Show, uh, because we're thinking about releasing Harvest Moon. And the best Neil Young to me is Neil Young and Crazy Horse. Right. That, that's the best Neil Young to me. And you know, and that's raw and exciting, and the start of grunge basically. And and then um, Harvest Moon is like an album. It was a studio produced album, and there was a big difference. And I called the president of, of the priest. I said, "Hey, Rich, hey, Audie." I said, "What's going on?" He said, "Well, we pressed, we pressed five hundred thousand Harvest Moon singles, and we're going to release it next Wednesday." I said, "No, you're not." He said, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, read the letter of intent that Neil sent you." that I have the power to make these decisions on Neil's behalf. Okay. And uh, I said, I want you to put him in a factory. I said, you can't come, and I explained, you can't come with a, a with a live band sounding album and then come with a studio produced meticulous album with songs that go back 10 years. And I said, Harvest Moon I love, but how do you, fo- you can't follow up that grunge album with, it's too much of a change for the Neil Young fans 
And I searched the album, and I found the one song, The Air She Breathes. She rides a Harley Davidson. And I, and it was the only rocker on on uh, Freedom, on Harvest Moon. And I, and I changed it, and I put out Harvest Moon and worked it very hard for two months. And uh, it went to number one, and that wow. album went platinum. So I gave Neil two platinum albums and uh, five top ten uh, songs. Wow. And I loved Neil, and you know, I didn't. Every time he paid me, and I got paid a lot of fucking money, but I didn't even want to cash anything. I was just honored to be working with Neil. Well, you know, going to the bridge concerts and smoking a joint with Graham Nash and Neil in a little hidden room. Huh. You know, it took yeah. me into the inside of the the inside where I was on the inside, but outside. Okay, because then they started to accept me as like being on their level as a as a music person. Now speaking of, now speaking of Graham Nash, you always had a uh, soft spot for the Hollies, didn't you? Yeah, I brought the Hollies to America. Right. And uh, four years before anybody heard of them, I I was running roulette, and Morris Levy, everybody knows if you're in the industry, uh-huh. it was a very tough company to be running. <laughs> and when I resigned, I'm lucky I still have legs. That's right. But uh, yeah, we, so we put a show at the Capitol Theater on Broadway. And it was ridiculous because you didn't mix colors in those days. But what we booked for the show is I booked the Hollies because I love them. And they were hardly known here. And I had the Hullabaloo's, the blonde group from England that I produced. Uh And I put them with Patti LaBelle and with the Isley Brothers. So, you know, you had two rockers and you had two two totally blues R&B groups. And and I go uh, three days before the show's going to open and the place is empty and I hear an acoustic guitar from the dressing room. So I walk in, and it's Graham sitting there. That's how we met. And I introduced myself. He said, oh, I love your song. You know, your record, the Pied Piper, was huge, you know, in, 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 in England, at Crispy and St. Peter. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm really happy about that. And then, and he was playing, this won't be the last time. And I picked up an acoustic, and I started playing with him. And we played for a couple of hours, and we became friends. And uh, every time I see Graham... Last time I was walking by and the stage door opened up in an intermission of Crosby and Nash tour. And he pulled me in and said, how dare you walk by without saying hello to one of your mates. And, and he hugged me and we, and I took him to play golf with me in LA. Uh-huh. And he's one of the gentlemen and one of the nicest people that I've met. He's, he's on the list of the nicest people and real people I know. Very nice. In the music world. Yeah. Yeah. And John Lennon was the same way. If you got, if you got past everything else. Just, just you and John. It was great just to be hanging out because just, just sitting around with John, saying nothing for a half hour, you know, you picked up so much of his spirituality. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you guys were friends at John's uh, later part of his life, you know, towards the end. When he was doing, uh, no, he was right after he did Imagine. Yeah, till the end. Yeah, well, yeah, but it was all my guys. I helped put the band together on the, for, for uh, well, Yuba Kraken was my guy, and you, you was the leader of the original Wings. He was the guy who put band on the run together. Right. You know, and he, he didn't go out with Wings. Paul, I think, over him a million dollars a year for 10 years on a farm in Scotland. And you was happening as a musician when his kids were born, 
and he spent it traveling, and he realized that he was going to be away and not see his grandchildren grow up. That's that's the kind of guy Yui was. Even after arranging the thrill is gone and produce, yeah. you know, last thing we did that you know is he beat the BB King. He arranged the thrill is gone with the other guitar player on it, and then he produced the Alicia Keys double platinum double platinum album. But, you know, if you look up Yuma McCracken, when people say compare the great guitar players, I go to I go to Yuma McCracken, and I also say Glenn Campbell was something incredible when he was like 19 when I met him. Yeah. And then he wasn't that slick country guy. He was a guy who came to the session in torn jeans with a T-shirt with a pack of cigarettes rolled up in the sleeve and a six-pack. And Glenn was Glenn was a trip. He was like a rebel without a cause, you know. And uh, yeah, and also Jim Webb did great stuff. And you know, Wichita Lineman and those songs are great. Yeah, yeah. Those, you know, so it's like a, the Jimmy Webb tunes. Yeah, well, Jimmy Webb was a great writer. MacArthur's Park was incredible. Yes, you know that was a, that was an incredible record. You know, yep. it's like uh, he wrote some great know, stuff. For, he wrote some great yeah. stuff for uh, Garfunkel too. Yeah, yeah, but you know what? It's, I mean, in reality, was uh, it, the only the well, I shouldn't even say this because it's about personal with, between Paul and Artie. Uh, anyway, I was happy that Paul did that last tour he did with Artie. Yeah, he came out of nowhere and they did a tour together. And I was with them. At the, we sat talking for two hours at the bridge concert in Palo Alto. Now, and, um, now you told me that um, um, I don't know if you told me, but I heard somewhere that um, that the uh, uh, Simon and Garfunkel tour was to help Barty get back on his feet. I, I told you that. Yeah. Okay. Artie anyway, I, I heard. I heard. That, needed, but I heard that Artie had made a lot of money in real estate. Is that true? Oh, I don't know. I didn't get into that. Chris, don't forget, Paul's brother, I had signed to me, and, you know, I looked up to Paul. He was he grew up, about, you know, he went to the same high school. My wife graduated. Right. You know, and uh, he actually came in when I was doing a record at A&R. That's where he did Bridge Over Troubled Waters. And I asked him, would he come in and play guitar? And I have a picture somewhere of me and Paul sitting behind the control board, and he wanted to plug his electric guitar I just wanted a guitar over up for him. And he plugged it right into the board, and we sat there for two hours. And he was such a, a perfectionist that well, he did some great stuff. And they go, no, I want to do one more. I want to do one more. You know, and it, it wasn't in the days when you could save 8,000 tapes. Sure. You know, you only had two tracks or four tracks. I don't remember what it was yeah. on that record. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, two tracks in, anybody who wrote or produced, because don't forget, the producers that happened, most of us had already done 100 or 200 demo songs to try to get the next Jerry Butler or the next Shirelles. And, and I got those. I had a Jerry Butler. I had a Shirelles. I mean, that was, your, that was the big thing if you were writing to get your music on the radio. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. First time I heard one of my songs on the radio, it was a follow-up to my boyfriend's back, and it went to 10. It was called I Adore Him that I wrote with Jan Berry. And I got, was in my car, and I, I put it on, and I, and I heard it, and uh, it just shocked me, you know, because they, they, the record wasn't as good as Jan's, Jan and my demo. Yeah, now, now, now you and Jan were pretty tight as well. Yeah, well, that's how we got into the Brian Wilson, and uh, yeah, it was, it was really great because, uh, you know, 
someone in the in the screen gym saying had a had a, a program director that they were close with. So on all my songs at screen gym, I was looking, and there were two writers I didn't even know on the songs huh? that they, they were getting royalties. And um, uh, anyway, working with you, I actually played with the Beach Boys at a <laughs> at a concert in a, in a in a parking lot in L.A. Really? And I played piano, and I played piano, which I didn't play. It was so funny because uh, Jan was singing like he was one of the Beach Boys. There was about two thousand kids there. It was that was fun, you know. That was my yeah, first time yeah. on stage, and I, you know, I I loved Brian's records. I mean, they were, right. to me they were simple. They weren't intricate like some of the lyrics I wrote, or like "You've Lost That Loving Feeling," or you know, or "Most Peculiar Man." Well, that that was Paul Simon song is Paul. Um, he was the most peculiar man. And Paul is the most peculiar man. And uh, Paul McCartney, I, I happened to become meet with him and with Linda. And we I hung out with Paul for a while and it was during Beatlemania. And going to a club in LA with Paul McCartney during Beatlemania was almost suicidal. It, it, and he was great. What a nice guy he was, and, and I think still is. You know, he he's, has no attitude at all. You know, and neither did John to me. I've heard other stories, but you know, don't forget if you read my book, I met him when he peed on my leg by accident at the record plant on a on a break in our sessions. <laughs> you know, Who's that? John Lennon. Yeah, Lennon, right. Okay. Yeah, you told us that yeah. story, yeah. Yeah, well, he told me that but the Pied Piper was yeah. the first record he ever bought, and I was really honored. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it was by Crispian, it was by Crispian St. Peter, but it was so sure. big in England. And, he heard, and a lot of those guys, they, they all say, oh, you wrote the Pied, like Leonard Cohen said, you wrote the Pied Piper. That was number one in Canada. Yeah. You know, and that's not my biggest song. Believe it or not, The Rain in the Park, I Love the Flower Girl. Just keeps right now. There's a commercial just came out worldwide with the Rain in the Park, and I wrote it in 1963. It's crazy. Wow. You know, if there's ever royalties, I won't be here to get them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. You know. So who who gets those? Yeah. Who's getting who those royalties? Them? Yeah. Well, if Caroline's alive, uh, you know. No, no, no. Are Caroline you are you getting the royalties for that now? Though you are right. Uh. Yeah, well, what happens is, for those of you who are writing that don't know how to do music, after X number of years, if you signed to a publisher or if you sold your publishing and you're writing to make money because you had to survive, which I did a couple of times, after X number of years, the copyright, like the Pied Piper and the Rain in the Park, I now own 100% again. You know, so I have a representative for fifteen percent, and that's how I got the commercial out of Europe on this 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 huge commercial on on the Pied Piper. The Shakti, God Almighty, yeah, sort yeah. came out in '63, and a commercial just came out in in whatever year this is. Right, right two thousand twenty-one. Right. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Last time I checked, <laughs> it's twenty twenty-one. Yeah. You know what? It's so funny because I think back how old I am. So I go back, oh, how long I've been in the business. I remember my first record was 58. Wow. And I still have to count on my fingers. Well, well, so, you know, so I go, what, what, I go what, 58, 68. What was in 58? What was, what, what was in 58? It was what got me signed. It was, I saved, I, I, I got $50 together. I, I had a girlfriend in high school and a father was the choreographer for Frank Sinatra, for Dion and the Belmonts, oh, for really? everybody. Well, 
And he was in a dancing group. It was the only white tap dancing group that did Ed Sullivan ten times. Oh, wow. And they were huge in Vegas. They were called the Dunhills. And one of them started Dunhill Records. That's how it started. Bobby Roberts oh, wow. was one of the Dunhills. So uh, I wrote a song called Vicky Is My Love. And I played it. Uh, and I went in myself, and, and I made this demo of it. And I played it for Lou. And his best friend was the agent of the biggest rock agency in America at the time. Who's that? General Artist. Who's that? Lou Who? Gen- Lou Who? Lou Who? It was Roz Ross, and it was called General Artist Corporation, and she was with Frank Barcelona, you know. Huh. And uh, uh, and they and they uh, they signed me, and uh, I, it came out. I didn't even know it came out, you know. I I was just looking on Facebook, and all of a sudden I see from 19, from 1958, I see, I see, Vicky is my Vicky is my love, and the name I chose to use was Jess Wild. That oh. was my name, oh. Jess Wild. You know, and I, there it was, and I didn't. I I found out like fifty years after it came out that it even came out, and it was my first record. I didn't even have a copy. Wow. <laughs> I don't have a copy of anything because you know with the, the divorces and you lose people, and you know I know sure. I have stuff in storage that I don't really want to go through. It's too many memories. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I understand. Yeah. I, I, and I gave away all my gold and platinum for for the TJ Martell and to help kids get sober, you know. And yeah. that's okay, you know. And, and and I think I think one my, one of my best accomplishments is when I was called and I put together that first Cocaine Anonymous meeting in L.A. That was the start of Cocaine Anonymous because uh-huh. now there must be seven million people in it. Wow. You know? Yeah, I went to meetings for 30-something years, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I remember um, the, the word the word was out at the time, if you want to do some networking, get to a cocaine anonymous meeting. That's where everybody's hanging. Yeah, well, you know what you can't, you know, it's funny because, okay, I'm, I'm going to, this is confidential, I shouldn't even tell the story, but I, I live right by the Shangri-La Ranch, where the last waltz, and my friend Larry owned it, and he managed the band when Albert Grossman died, and the band was living, except for Danko, who was my best friend in the band, the band was, and I had him on Capitol, and the band was was living at the studio, because they were broke during this period, and uh, so I got, I said a prayer one night after trying to get off that fucking drug for 20 years, and I, um, I was sober, and so I walk into one of the rooms, and there's Gary Busey and and Harry uh, Clapton sitting with a big mirror, you know. And um, anyway, wherever they were at, out of nowhere, I start. I think I had, I had an AA book because I had an uncle with an alcoholic, and I had read it once. And I took it and I and I started to read the twelve steps. And Gary Busey was so crazy. He started to write down every word I was saying on the pad, like he was taking dictation. Wow. And uh, I said to him, I'm going to remember walking in on Clapton. Because Clapton and I, the first time we met, is someone arranged for us to meet at the Fillmore after he came on stage with Derek and the Dominoes. Uh-huh. And the first time we met, we know we met, but neither one of us remember what happened. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you know, but it was wow. That's how I met Eric, you know, and he, he didn't stand out to me. He was just another musician backstage. Sure. He, you know, but I, I love Derek and the Dominoes. Yeah, yeah, they're a great band. Yeah, yeah, Eric's a great, great musician. He's a he, he's a great guy. You know, the stuff he's done, 
the stuff he's done to help people, you know, yes, is incredible. You know, his place in the in the in the uh, in the Caribbean, yep. you know. Yeah, yeah he, does, he, he does. He does those. He does those guitar crossroads festivals. You know. Yeah, and, and and he also he also built what the you know one of the top rehab facilities yep. in the world. Yes. You know, and that's why I look up to him. Not 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 for Layla. I look up to him because of what he did with with, with his life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He um. You know? Yeah, he definitely did do a lot. He he definitely. Yeah. I've been around a long time, but I like a couple of lines now. You better believe it. Yeah. But it's been 38 years. And who would even want to go through that hell again? I know. I know. But yeah. Eric, Eric had a tough life, too. You know, it's, you know. Yeah, he got sober about 12 years after I did. Oh, really? Yeah. It was that long after you, huh? Yeah, well, it, I can't even tell you. The meeting I put together, I rented a room in a hospital for the first meeting, and I can't even name the people that were there because they were actors, you know, and bands, sure, sure. huge band musicians, because that's who I knew to invite. And uh, it was just uh, it was just shocking because that was it for me, you know. And, you know, and uh, it was great. I spoke at seven. What happened is I, I, I got to speak at seven state one year anniversary things that flew me in to speak in Phoenix and Salt Lake City and Minneapolis uh-huh. and that was great and, and working with and working with young kids, you know, and I started a I started a foundation in Chicago for inner cities kids that were messed up. And I'm no saint, you know. Sure. I'm as I'm as I'm as frail as I was, you know. When I when I I, I did that run, it just you know you do it with side. People want to be your friends. They build your ego. They get you high, and the next thing you know, you're addicted to them, not them to you. Right, right, right. Yeah, and that and, that, and then my book, the Pied Piper of Woodstock. You know, anybody who didn't read it, you're really dumb. Because yeah, I know. Even I know. Paul, Paul Simon and everybody that's read it, there's 300 five-star reviews. They've all said, Artie, you told a true story. There's not one picture of me with a superstar because I didn't want the book to be about that. Right. I want to tell the, the true story of Woodstock and the true story of what happened after Woodstock and how I, I lived through death and stuff and how I'm, I'm, I'm here and I still get happy. Artie, where can people find the book now? Amazon. I publish them myself. I turned down a publishing deal, and uh, I'm probably even on what I put in, you know. And didn't have a lot of bread at the time, but I didn't want to, you know. You know, it's like when Michael did his book. You know, if you take a look, Michael didn't write the book. It was written by a Rolling Stone writer. Right, right, right. Michael, Michael, Michael wrote two books, and I think Simon and Schuster turned them down. And he, I think he got bread. We never discussed this. Uh-huh. And uh, and you know, and, and I didn't, I didn't want to go corporate. I just wanted to write it myself. And you know what? I've never read the book because I started crying at different parts of writing it. Sure. It brought back, it brought back, you know, brought, especially when I got to the death of my wife and daughter. Because you know, yeah. not many people see their wife die in front of them with an aneurysm. She was never sick. No. You know, not drug related, and then come home after, after getting sober, come home to find their daughter dead on the floor, and I was a wreck. Yeah. You know, yeah. but you know, thank God for the meditation and the fact I kept going to meetings and and I did that. I I did Eye of the Tiger and Survivor within four months of my daughter dying. 
I just went right back into the music world. It was my only door to go through to escape. Yeah, yeah. Not not drugs, but the music. Right. Yeah, and, and Survivor was a great band because, you know, I might have found them, but Jim Peter already had a number one record when he was in the Eyes of March when he sang I'm Your Vehicle, Baby. You know, okay. So, and yeah. he also, they also wrote Rock in the Nights for 38 Special. That's right. Yeah, so Jim Peterick and Frankie Sullivan were a good writing team. And Peterick's very talented. They just weren't very loyal. I left Survivor because they fired their lead singer when I the Tigers number one. And I walked in and I had a meeting with them. I after working for them with them for two years, I tore up the contract and said, "You know what? You I'm closing it out now. I don't want anything back that I gave you. I wish you the best." And uh, but you know, you fired, but you fired the sound of Survivor, and you'll never have another hit record. And you know what? They never did. Well. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, I, I did, I did three Woodstock interview tours around the country just to set up, just to set up Survivor. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Me and Lee Barnes is very big on Facebook. Uh, yes. We actually drove around the country, and I did about a hundred radio interviews in, on that trip. Then we had two parties, and huge, huge parties, and one in L.A. and one in Miami. You know, and this before the band happened. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, yes. And yet, people don't realize there was a uh, um, connection between the Ides of March and Survivor. No, unless I tell them. You know, yeah. they don't want to say. I don't know why they never. Came out with it, you know. Yeah. And you know, I said some things in this interview, but uh-huh. I never hide the thing. You know, I didn't mean to say what I. What I, I the Gary Busey Eric Clapton story. It was sure. just a wonderful memory to me because I, I was with Eric at a point when I was glad I was with him. Okay. You know, and you know, you know, and, you know. Maybe if he noticed a big difference in me from the last time we were together, you know, and he saw what it was. Who knows? Maybe ten years later, he thought back to that day I walked in on him and him and Busey. Well, maybe he forgot it. Probably he forgot it. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't because it's fucking Eric Clapton. <laughs> right. So, Artie, who who are some of the? Um, I know you had thousands of friends in the music business. A lot of uh, uh, you know, tons and tons of famous people. Who who kind of sticks out as being super super? Uh, uh, nice, you know, just a good, good name. I know Richie Havens did. I knew Richie. Richie was a great well, guy. Yeah. Who else? Yeah, who else kind of? Yeah. Who else kind of strikes you that way? Well, before getting messed up by his father and the psychiatrist Brian Wilson and Jan Berry from Jan and Dean. You know, the whole time Jan was Jan and Dean and having number one records. And I wrote the, the Drag City album. That's the first platinum album, and that was came out right. At, before Jan died. And um, Brian Wilson was so much fun to be with. And Larry Utah, who I brought, when I stopped producing Debbie Harry and the group before, I, 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 took, I told Larry Utah the private stock records about her. And, and that's when she became Bondi, you know. And Debbie was great to be around. Larry Utah was great to be around. Uh, and the musician level, uh, I, I, Graham Nash, I, I think, is great. You know, I like Messina from Londons and Messina. You know, just certain people stick out. And I love the guys that worked in the studios. Even the guys uh, 
Like Jimmy Iovine, who owns Interscope, I met Jimmy when he was the cleanup guy at, at the record plant. Yeah. And he would set up the chairs and set up the microphones, you know, and now he's, uh, I guess he's probably worth a couple of hundred million dollars. Right, right, but right. But I, I don't think, I don't think that tells what a person is because I was going to say, look what Trump is worth, and in reality, that's all a myth anyway. Yeah. You know, you know, so it's like, uh, yeah. So we're, so speaking of Trump, we're, we're, where's, where's our country headed to these days? Um, well, I, 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 I think what he started, you know, I knew about it because I knew Abby Hoffman, I knew the Black Panthers. So in the 60s, before Woodstock, and I, I dealt with these people before Woodstock. You know, when I hear the word of mouth, I had a staff of six people that promoted Woodstock, and we were the word of mouth. When people tell me it just happened by word of mouth, well, someone put out the word of mouth, what it was going to be. And if you listen to the commercials, no one had ever advertised the concert. You know, when Bob Geldof, who did Live Aid, interviewed me for, for the BBC last year, he said, Audie, if I only had you when I did Live Aid, mate, it would still be going on, and we, you should have been a partner in that. And and I said, Bob, you did an incredible thing, and I wish right. it was still going on. You know, uh, I forgot the question because I, I shifted into a, another thing that happened this year. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, I was shocked when Bob Geldof called me because we weren't friends. He called me out of nowhere on my house phone. Right. He said, oh, it's Bob Geldof. I said, no shit. <laughs> really? Well. So I looked up to him because doing two concerts simultaneously around the world and yeah. broadcasting it, you know, and um, he's a musician and a writer and he's never had a hit. He's done a bunch of albums. Well, he had a, I Don't Like Mondays. That was a hit. Yeah, well, yeah, I didn't think it was great. No. I agree with you. I agree with you on that. Yeah. And he's a great guy, you know, and he interviewed me for an hour and a half, and it was uh, for the BBC uh, radio special. Uh-huh. And, uh, and uh, he didn't interview anybody else about Woodside. He just interviewed me. It was interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Geldof's a great guy. Yeah, and he was talking to another writer and another music guy, a musician and a producer, just like him. Uh-huh. You know, and two guys that, you know, took a shot at ridiculous things, and they both happened to me. Live Aid happened, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. You know, I remember Live Aid, and, you know, I, I remember Monterey, but, uh, you know, you know, like, uh, like Bill Graham said to me, you know, I'm not joking myself, and it's not ego, I'm just saying fact. You know, when Bill Graham said to me, I hate you and Michael Lang, you know, I said, why? He said, because I'm the greatest promoter that ever lived, and you guys pulled off the big one, and I've never been able, I tried with Monterey, I've never been able to do it. Wow. And I said, sorry, Bill, and we were shooting baskets backstage at the Sunrise, Sunshine Amphitheater that he owns in Palo Alto. Uh huh. You know, and he had a basket in the back, and right. I shoot baskets with Bill. <laughs> You know, I don't know him from backstage at the film. I know him from Judy Baskets backstage at a, at a Neil Young concert. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. Oh, I loved that. For three or four years, Neil would take me with his family. He would give me the same cabin that he had next door to him. His wife at the time, Peggy, would drive me to this site and back and forth. And, you know, and, and then when I walked in, I, I last time was wonderful because Paul Simon was sitting at a table. And he had another chair there, and he was backstage, and I walked by, and he said, Artie. Oh, I said, hey, Paul. He said, Artie, would you come and sit with me? And then 
we went over and he basically apologized to me for really not being there when my family passed away. Right. And I and about his brother who I who I paid for years. And uh it was so touching because I never really heard Paul open up on a personal level like that. And there was all there was like tears between us, you know, and that that was a that was a very high moment. Sure. Paul Paul Simon, he's very eccentric. Yes. And, uh, you know, maybe he's the first guy I know but went to see a shrink. I don't know. <laughs> no, nah, he, but he's intense and he's brilliant. And he's yeah, a he nice is. guy. He's, he's, a, he's a Forest Hills high school kid. <laughs> right, 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 right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, my friend, we were, uh, we, we were just about out of time. And um, I'd like to thank you for spending the afternoon with me. Oh, my pleasure always. And are we going to do this again next month? Yeah. Okay. So let's say goodbye to everybody now, and um, I'll speak to you later, and we'll set up the next time and everything. And uh, stay safe out there, Art. And it's, it's, I'm glad uh, Michael's able to call in and say hello today. And uh, I love your stories. Yeah, you're surprised me with that because I just spoke to him for an hour the day before last. I know, I know. He told me he wasn't going to tell you. Yeah, no, I was surprised. You Good. know, you know. Then I was sitting. Beautiful. He said he's because I'm used to being the, the host of a show, so I was watching, listening to you. Yeah. First, I got bothered because you were asking Michael stuff, and I was listening to what he was saying. Uh-huh. And I know the, the real story. I know Michael. I know. I know Michael better than anybody knows Michael, and I love Michael. I know. You know, but I didn't talk to him for 15 years. Right. You know, but but I'm so happy that we have the connection that we have now because it's the same connection we had. Beautiful. You know? And don't forget, we were kids in the same neighborhood in Brooklyn. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. What part of Brooklyn were you in? Bensonhurst. That's right, Bensonhurst Blues. Yeah, it's huge. There's another three records on it came out in the last yeah. two months in Europe. I was yeah, in, there's, not, there's 14 records on Bensonhurst Blues now. That's it's right. Two. I was in Flatbush and uh, Canarsie. Yeah, oh, I know that. Sure. Sure. I went out of the bill and lived on Clarendon. And, and when I was at Adelphi, when I was president of the sophomore class, the, the high schools would all have college nights, and the colleges, St. John's, NYU, uh-huh. Columbia, they'd all send people to speak to the senior class. Yeah. And Adelphi would send me to speak because I was president of, of the sophomore class at Adelphi. Uh-huh. And, um, uh, yeah, and I met a, and then I, and then I met a girl who was at Adelphi who lived on Clarendon Road, and that, and my aunt owned the, uh, what was what was it? Dubrows was Dubrows. Yeah, Dubrows. Dubrows, right? Yeah, right. yeah. So you know, I remember going. And yeah. My aunt, my aunt, my aunt Bertha had this the Necky sewing machine right underneath the overpass where the subway went. Yeah, yeah. You know, he had a sewing machine store right underneath it. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and I'll tell you. Yeah. That, then, then later on in life, I um, I, I helped. Uh, um, I, I invested in a comic book baseball card store on Avenue L. And uh, mm. right underneath the uh, train there, Avenue J. I'm sorry, underneath the uh, um, underneath the, the train overpass up there, and that was um, yeah, that was right before I left New York for the first time. But yeah, yeah, Brooklyn was a uh, great place to be. It's even oh yeah, I knew Sandy Koufax when he was 15 years old. Oh wow, yeah, and uh, I, and I knew John Gotti. Uh-huh. She was from the neighborhood. Yeah, yep. it was a crazy. It was a Jewish Italian neighborhood. Yeah, you know, it was very. You know, there, there was 
it was you didn't see a lot of black people there no, at all. No, because, you know, and it, it, it was just um, it was like it was like a community, you yeah. know, like it could have been in Iowa. Yep. Yep, but yep, yep, except yep. it was except it was like second generations from wherever they came from. Yeah. I'm 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 weird because on my mother's side I'm third generation American, and on my father's side my grandmother I could never spoke English. She spoke Russian. Mine too. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I'm third generation on my uh, father's side. Yeah, you had the same trip. Yeah, 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 yeah. And my mother's side was Russian. Yep, same thing. And um, you remember Gotti's house was a pretty small house, right? It was very yeah unobtrusive, yeah. very quiet looking, very very small. Yeah, yep. yeah. Well, I was three doors. I was three doors away in a building, but it was during the war when my father was in hospital in the Philippines. There was five of us living in a one bedroom while he was in uh, gone for four years for World War Two. Wow, you know, and I. Uh, but it overlooked the park, and four doors down, Genovese lived. <laughs> oh, well. Wow. Yeah, wow. I knew the kids. I knew the kids, and I knew, I knew Sonny Franchese. And yeah. They, and, those, and those were the safest neighborhoods. Oh, yeah. And my, plus, my dad was a cop. He was a cop in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But those are yeah. the safest neighborhoods in the gangster neighborhoods. Yeah. Well, it's good if you have a 6'5", all-American, Olympic swimming father. Uh -huh. You got a full scholarship to Syracuse for academics. Yeah, it didn't you hurt. Know, and, uh, ah, you know what hurt that I got into the music business? Because the last 20 years of my life, I didn't get to, f to complete the bonds with my family, my immediate family. Right. I was so into the music and the trip, you know. You know, that's that's the only regret that I, did I take. It's like Dead Man's Curve is not about a car wreck. Did I go? Did I go left or right at Dead Man's Curve? Did I make the wrong turn? Right. You know, and I said, I guess not, because here I am. And I'm I'm very grateful for my blessings, and I I you know I I'm I'm a certified grief counselor because uh -huh. I couldn't get straight and and I went to a course with funeral directors. Ready for this? And uh, if, I hope everybody's listening. Don't think about what you lost. You know, I said, God, thank you. Thank you for giving me my daughter for 16 years. They were wonderful, and I'm really I'm really grateful, and I'm really happy when I think about it. Yeah. But it took me 30 years to get into that head. Right, 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 right. You know, and I stayed sober, and people were shocked, and that's what got me so popular in the program. Because when I stood up at a meeting and said, my daughter died last night. You know, people were shocked that I came to a meeting and shared that. Yeah. And, you know, so it made me very popular because they knew I was honest. That must have been tough. That must have been a tough time in your life. Yeah. Well, I'm talking a lot, but that no more than any other bipolar would do. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's another thing we have in common. <laughs> yeah, really. I, you know, the whole... Yeah, talk about bipolar. I know. Yeah. What I about know. Trump? I, I don't know. If, I don't know what the hell he is, but I don't think they have the disease. I think he's. I think he's. Mind. I think he's tripolar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and definitely, definitely schizophrenic. Definitely, and definitely, and definitely. I don't know what he is. I, I don't think he's a tough guy at all. I think nah, he's a pussy. I do too. How about Rush Limbaugh dying? You know, yesterday. Well, I was telling him my reaction was, "Oh boy, am I glad he died." Yeah, you know. 
But I'm not there because he might be in a big place, you know. Like I said to you, and it's a big theme of a book I'm working on. And, and I said, the first half of our life, everything we do, no matter whether it's academic or athletic uh-huh. or doing it's all based around getting laid and sex. Right, right. You know? And then I said, to, and then when you get to 45, all of a sudden, you stay, you're living in fear of death. So I said, that's our life. There you go. Half sex and half afraid to die. Well, you know, you I know? tried to... I tried leading you into that before. I, I said to you before, what's what, what's going on with the second part of our lives now? I tried leading you into that question. Oh, yeah, and I couldn't remember because I didn't want to go there. But, you know, in reality, I went through the fear of death. That was 20 years ago. Right. You know? Yep. And who knows? I might have been dead at that point. Who knows, too? I know. I know, I know. But, yeah. um, hey, you're with us today, and you're going to be with us next month, and um, we'll, we'll pick it up again next month, okay? Yeah, from dirty nose to who knows. That's a big progress. (laughs) Okay, my friend, I'll talk to you uh, offline, and uh, thanks again for spending the afternoon with me. Yeah, God bless you all. Ram Shante, Namaste, and whatever you do today. And Zygazint and all that other fun stuff. Yeah, Yeah, Bigazint. Take care. Thanks a lot, Al. Okay, my friend, I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye-bye. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Fly on the Wall. There are more great interviews to follow so please list us as one of your favorites and be sure to follow. We are listener funded. If you would like to assist our Venmo info is New Mexico DJ service. The PayPal info is New Mexico DJ service at gmail.com. Please remember to share our info. Thanking you all.